and welcome back to Breathing Well. This is episode six in which we will finish out chapter three of C.S. Lewis's A Brief Observed. So at the end of the last podcast, I teased what was coming up here because it's just so exciting. At the beginning of the book, we have Lewis coming to God in his grief and feeling like he's coming to a door, banging on the door, asking God to let him in, only to hear not only is the door slammed in his face, but it's bolted and double bolted. And here at the halfway point of chapter three, he's back to that door and he says, I've gradually been coming to feel that the door is no longer shut and bolted. And then he asks here a bit of a rhetorical question. Was it my own frantic need that slammed it in my face? The time when there is nothing at all in your soul except a cry for help may be just the time when God can't give it. You were like the drowning man who can't be helped because he clutches and grabs. Perhaps your own reiterated cries deafen you to the voice you hope to hear, unquote. So I would like to offer a couple of uh, critiques here. First of all, definitely something that is very positive, both for the person who grieves and for the person who is just having a difficult time in their relationship with God, the person who is struggling with identifying is is God there is he around can he hear can he hear me what we see that's really great here is for Lewis to say you know what maybe that door not only is it not shut now maybe it wasn't shut to begin with to be able to reflect back and see that maybe I wasn't looking at this properly so that is a great thing however I do wish to quibble here a bit with Lewis Lewis seems to be taking the uh, tact. In fact, he, we even see it in the paragraph after that where where he quotes the scriptures that talk about knocking it shall be open to you. And then he says, Lewis says here, but you must have a capacity to receive or even omnipotence can't give. Now, there's some theology to get into, into here, but I think it's in theology that's incredibly important. It, it's not just uh, head in the clouds, ivory tower theology. This is some very practical theology. Lewis is making the claim here that we have to be, you know, ready and willing. We have to be primed, so to speak. We have to let God minister to us. So I want to offer a couple of responses to that. First of all, I don't think that's entirely true. I don't think that's always the case. One of the greatest examples that we can go to is given uh, three times in the book of Acts is the conversion of Saul, eventually who would be called Paul. This man who he was not ready to receive, he was not seeking God, and yet God knocked him down. He was blinded. God actively sought him. And so I do think here that Lewis is misrepresenting the gospel just a a bit, just a hair, but enough that, that there is a difference so that in our grieving process or in general in our approach to how we how we see God. There is, on the one hand, and we're going to have a, I'm going to have a another view here in just a moment that I want to balance this with. But there is, on the one hand, this I think we need to keep in mind that sometimes God does reach past what we are looking for. Sometimes God, in His grace, knocks us down. He blinds us. Sometimes, in and again, in our grieving process, we may not be properly looking at Him. We may be so racked with guilt and with grief, with any kind of emotional hardship, and yet what God does is in His omnipotence, He bowls us over. So I, I 
do want to critique here Lewis just a bit, where he's he's offering this understanding that perhaps this door has seemed bolted and double bolted because Lewis wasn't yet ready or willing to receive what God had offered to him. That's not always always the case. Now I want to balance that too, on the other hand. Okay, so we had on the one hand that God, even when we're not looking for him, even when we are angry at him without fault, even when we are questioning, he reaches down. But the, on the other hand, too, I want to get at what I think Lewis is trying to get at, which is to say, yet there is some agency on our part. There is this sense in which we are expected to to view God in the right kind of way and to think about him in the right kind of way. You know, I think of uh, Joshua 24, where Joshua says, I'm uh, going to put this in the Underwood paraphrase here, but come what may, no matter what else happens, me and my house, we're serving God. You know, there's this active there's this active sense in which uh, we approach the Lord. So first let me say, in our grief, in our grieving process, and, and I've mentioned this several times now, but there, there needs to be a balance. There needs to be a balance between allowing ourselves to feel a, an absolute roller coaster of emotions, allowing ourselves to be human, allowing ourselves to ask the hard questions. There's that, but then there's also the sense in which we want to analyze ourselves. And Lewis is going to get to that here shortly. Another major theme that we see throughout this half of the chapter is Lewis looking back at his wife and appreciating her for who she was. And I just, I love this. I think this is an amazing touch in these journals for those in the grieving process especially in the grieving process, you know, to having lost a loved one, he's looking back and cherishing her for all that she is, for all that she was. And there's something amazingly, not not just romantic about that, but even gospel-ish about that. There's this sense in, in which he is seeing reality. He is seeing truth. He is He is seeing her for what she is. As I record this, we are currently going through Genesis in our sermon series at church. And just today, as Matthew was sharing about Cain and Abel, that that Cain did not see properly who they were. He saw himself as something more than what he was. He saw his brother as something less than what he was. And so there's something very gospel-oriented about identity, about seeing in one another another human being and seeing in one another not not that there is this constant comparative, that there's not this constant contrast in which we judge one another, evaluate one another, in which we compete. Instead, though, what we see is Lewis loving his wife. And so in the grieving process, that's healthy. You know, there's something very cherishable about that, which leads Lewis into a great discussion on marriage and So what I would like to look at next is this Christian view of marriage. He says here, I'm going to read most of a paragraph. He says, for we, talking about himself and joy, uh, his wife, he said, for we did learn and achieve something. There is hidden or flaunted a sword between the sexes till an entire marriage reconciles them. It is arrogant in us to call frankness, fairness, and chivalry masculine when we see them in a woman. It is arrogance in them to describe a man's sensitiveness or tact or tenderness as feminine. 
but also what poor warped fragments of humanity most mere men and mere women must be to make the implications of that arrogance plausible. And then he says this, marriage heals this. Jointly the two become fully human. And then he quotes scripture, Genesis, in the image of God created he them, this plural, this singular plurality. Lewis offers here an amazingly Christian understanding of marriage that you just really don't get anywhere else. You get this understanding, as he says here, that marriage really is about two people who aren't whole, two people who, as I love the, the verb that he uses there, marriage heals. And yet it is a healing that is unlike any that we see in the biological world, in the real biological reality of our universe. There is this healing in which two things that are, we might say, diseased, unwhole, they are both wounded, and yet when you throw the two wounds together, when you throw the two diseased bodies together, somehow they heal one another. It, it doesn't make sense. The metaphor breaks apart here because we don't really see this other than in marriage, in which you have two things that are unwhole, two things that are that are lacking completely. And when you put these two damaged things together, you get something amazingly complete. And what an amazing, amazing picture, amazing understanding of marriage that that, that, that is. However, the problem, the hard thing, though, is as Lewis points out, he's in the middle of even glorifying God and praising him um, for what he has created. And yet then, and this is part of the grieving process, this is part of grief, and then, boom, he remembers, oh yeah, I don't have that anymore. And that right there, that's that's grief 101. That is grief at its at its most basic, is to be in the middle of, of enjoying something, to be in the middle of even remembering something good. And then, as I'm jumping ahead here, but as, as Lewis describes later, it's, it's like having your leg chopped off over and over. You, you keep being reminded, oh yeah, I don't have that. But what we really see in this chapter is Lewis balancing. Lewis coming to a very healthy understanding here of being able to look and see that there is both joy, uh, of course his wife's name, but I can't think of a better word than that, but there is both joy and terror. There is both happiness and sorrow in this grieving process, and that's okay. It is completely okay for one moment for you to be you know, crying hysterically and the next moment for you to be laughing. You know, it's it's a type of situation where, you know, someone not in the middle of the grieving process, uh, it'd be a very understandable thing for someone to look at someone like that and say, there's something off with them. Because, you know, for one moment you can be on a mountaintop and the next moment you can be in the valley. You know, you, you think of something like a funeral, and it's and it's one of those things that when you look at it at a funeral, you don't even think anything about it. It's so natural. It's so understandable to look at someone who one moment, because, you know, maybe someone has shared a story of the person who has just passed away, remembering some great memory about them, calling to mind what fun 
what amazing times we had once had to be laughing, to be in what would seem to be complete joy, and then for the next moment here again, like Lewis talks about, for your leg to be chopped off over and over, for you to be reminded, then wait a second, I don't have them anymore. And this reflects scripture even. I want to look at Psalm 30. Because in here we see, and it's one of the things I love most about humanity, is we're such amazingly complex creatures that are capable of producing and holding such a variety of emotions and feelings. David says here in chapter 30, starting with verse 1, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. Even that verse right there, I will extol you, I'm glad, I'm praising you. And yet, why is he doing that? Because you've kept my foes from rejoicing over me, which implies I've been in trouble. I've had a hard time. Verse 2, O Lord my God, I cried to you for help, and you have healed me. Verse 3, O Lord, you have brought me up from Sheol, from from the grave, from hell. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Verse 4, sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. And then verse 5 is the verse I really wanted to hone in on here, where he says, For his, talking about God, for his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. And then this verse that speaks so well to the person who's grieving, but again, to any Christian who is warbling, if I can use that word, who is having a difficult time finding the balance, having a difficult time standing upright in your faith, he says this, Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. And that is a huge part of what it means to live the Christian life. A huge part of the gospel is this ability to transcend temporality, this ability to overcome the timeliness, to overcome the fact that we live in a moment. The Christian is able to see past what's happening. The Christian is able as we grieve and as we go into sorrow over the loss of a loved one, as we mourn the loss of a job, as we can hardly come to terms with the fact that maybe a family member has been sent to prison, a family member has lost something, in the midst of that, we can see the future. Obviously, we can't see the exact events, but you know, as we were singing this morning in church, we walk by faith and not by sight. Because joy comes with the morning. The Christian can see past death. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that the gospel? Is that we can see beyond the grave. We can see that there's more. The grave shall not hold us because he's conquered it. It does not keep us down. And Lewis is starting to, in his, in his journals here, in his observations, he's starting to see past the moment that he's in. Now, for anyone that is grieving, I don't want to rush you because that's one of the worst things that can happen is to try to push somebody. I mean, I'll just be quite blunt with you. If my wife dies tomorrow and one of you walks up to me and says, hey, you know, she's in a better place. Get ready for me to want to deck you one. So we don't want to rush anybody to that, but in the grieving process, that is coming. There is hope. And even in the midst of the grieving process, there can be this hope spoken that there will be joy that comes with the morning, that it does get 
better. That is gospel truth. Now, the next area that I would like to look at here is in a couple of ways. First of all, in content, but also in form. This is one of the greatest sections of the book. Lewis, again, both what he says and how he says it are just, it's, it's really good writing. So here Lewis considers, you know, what would have been for him an old-timer. And he's thinking of the type of old-timer who is a widow, and Lewis describes him this way. He says, just as far as I think as a widow were of another sort who would stop leaning on his spade, which is to say his shovel, and say an answer to our inquiry. In other words, you know, that this would be this man's response to the person who asks how he's doing. How are you in your grief? And that this old man would say, thank you. Mustn't grumble. I do miss her something dreadful. But they say these things are sent to try us. The widower would respond that way, to which Lewis says, We have come to the same point. He with his spade, and I, who am now not much good at digging, with my own instrument. But of course, one must take sent to try us the right way. Lewis says here, this phrase like sent to try us, we must understand that correctly. Lewis says this, God has not been trying an experiment on my faith or love in order to find out their quality. He knew it already, unquote. And that's what we must recognize, dear Christian. Whether you be grieving, whether you be even someone who uh, you think right now, I'm on top of the world. I've got my faith in order. I am the most Christ-like I've ever been in my life. This is an amazing understanding here. The things that happen to us, it isn't for God. It's not like he, because remember, Lewis has said previously, you know, is God some vivisector? Is God up there toying with us? Is he up there doing little experiments out of cruelty? No, Lewis finally understands here or finally comes to the conscious understanding that that's not what's happening. Instead, it's for me. This is for this is for me as the individual. As these things happen, they reveal to me who I am. I thought I knew myself. Now I know for sure. Now, before I mention this next phrase that Lewis says, we as Americans, I need to, to mention a couple of things here. He's going to mention the word dock. Uh, for them, the dock it would be where a defendant sits during the trial. So the person who is being accused they will sit in the dock. And also when he says bench here in just a moment, we're talking about the, the judge's bench where the judge sits. Because Lewis says, it was I who didn't, I who didn't understand the, the quality of my faith or love. In this trial, God makes us occupy the dock, the witness box, and the bench all at once. I think that's, uh, that's pretty observant right there. That in, in any test of faith, be it grief or whatever else you're facing, dear Christian, this, this is what's happening. God puts us in all of these things. He calls us like we're on the dock. We are, we are brought up in such a way that we feel defensive, that we feel like we're being attacked. And yet also God has called us to the witness stand to testify even against ourselves or for ourselves. But we are to call to account what happened. And then also God has, and this is part of the image of God, and yet we are also to judge ourselves. We are also to, to consider our actions. We're also to, to reflect, to contemplate 
Have I acted rightly? Have I thought rightly? Again, the complexity of humanity, this amazing creature that we are, that we're made in the image of God in such a way that not only is it us before God, but it's us before ourselves. And Lewis, we're getting farther along in the book here. We're not too far from the end. We're in the next to last chapter, and he's starting to recognize, wait, I've got to examine myself. And then Lewis ends that paragraph by, with these two sentences. Talking about God, he says, He always knew that my temple was a house of cards. His only way of making me realize the fact was to knock it down. And so Lewis begins to look at the death of his wife. He looks at this most difficult, this gravest time in his life to say, What can be done here? This again is where the Christian is able to do something that no one else is able to do. It's been placed in our hands that we're able to, to shape ourselves. We're able to see ourselves as God sees us. We're able to turn ashes into beauty, the redemptive quality of the gospel, so that in the midst of our tragedy, as we are in the middle of the muck and the mire, as we're at the bottom of the pit, God allows us, he affords us the opportunity to look at ourselves now. As uh, as someone who is overweight and balding and never had a great-looking face to begin with, looking at myself in the mirror is sometimes not that great. And I think I speak for most of us when I say that kind of thing, that, you know, really looking at yourself, the mirror can be one of the scariest things in the world to look at. We notice things in ourselves that no one else notices. I would challenge you that in in your grief, if that's what you're facing, but as a Christian in general, whatever hardship you're facing, whether it be self-inflicted or it's something from, from outside, commandeer that, leverage that. Use this as an opportunity, as Lewis does here, Use this as an opportunity to really examine yourself. As we look at, you know, in James, where it talks about that that only only a fool would would hold up a mirror before his face, see that it's dirty, and walk away. No, that's this is what the one of the things that the gospel does for us is that we can see who we really are. Now, that's good news and bad news. I know the word gospel literally means good news. It could be bad news though if if you just look at yourself and you see where you are, and you stop, and you stay there. And let me say here, Satan would love that. Both Satan and the Holy Spirit want to show us many of our flaws, many of our problems. The Holy Spirit wants us to rise in gospel power, in Holy Spirit, sanctified kind of way, to be able to rise up to the level of Christ when we see what we are. Satan is completely happy with us to see ourselves in our sin and for us to stay there, for us to to grovel in it, for us to believe that that is the best we can do. So I end us here at the end of this chapter three saying that what we see here is opportunity. Such a Christian, such a gospel-oriented understanding to look at grief as an opportunity. Now, as always, I, I do not want in any way to diminish the pain or to ignore the hurt that some of you might be facing in whatever loss that you're facing. But as Christ would have us do, let us leverage that. Let us take that and exchange it 
for something greater. Let us, in the midst of it, at least turn this ugliness, turn this pain into something better. And so I look forward to talking to you next time, which will be our next to last episode, in which Lewis and, of course, we, by extension, will consider how to move forward from here.